Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 8 today, so if you've got your Bibles or your app or whatever it is you want to find that to follow along, jump in there. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8, and as you're turning there, I want to share with you a, a, a headline that I saw in the paper uh, this week. And so I just want to, I'm going to give you a minute just to take that in and absorb everything you're seeing there. That's how I felt too. Uh, when you look at that, you think, what just happened? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what got into this guy, but he was obviously very focused and very excited about a certain activity. But uh, the article read, a man was placed into custody after reports came in from all over downtown Los Angeles that a man had been seen running up to other men and cutting off their man buns. Dozens of men filled the police station to press charges after their top knots or man buns were, were, were removed. One guy said, he attacked me and aggressively removed my top knot. I was in fear for my life from this madman. It will take me years to regrow my hair. I hope that he gets the punishment he deserves for wounding me so viciously. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a real crime. But I have a hard time not laughing, right? I mean, it's a hard time not just kind of giggling about this thing. I don't, what the, the article went on to say is each assault can come with a sentence of up to 18 months in jail, which times 37 means he's got a, potentially up for over 55 years in prison coming up uh, for this work that he, that he was doing. Now, what the guy that was overheard saying as he was being detained was, the Lord spoke to me this morning. He told me I was to be his soldier here on earth doing his work. I've done nothing wrong. I was doing the Lord's work. Interesting observation, right? Interesting approach about doing the Lord's work. Now, I just want to acknowledge I'm on iffy ground here uh, because this is a real crime and there's probably some mental illness and other stuff involved, but it's hard not to laugh at something so silly, right? It's hard not to laugh at something uh, that's going on. Honestly, I was a little disappointed in the newspaper. They didn't come up with like a name for the guy. I was thinking like the man, the man bun menace or the top knot terror. Like surely you should have come up with some kind of a special name for this guy. And I think there was an opportunity. What was that? Someone? Man bun bandit. Man bun bandit. There you go. Got another one. Got home alone fan down here. I had to go bandit. Uh, I actually thought of that myself. I was, I was wondering about that one. Um, but obviously, there's a lot going on. But here's what I want to say is, this does raise, a, I think, a series of questions about, one, what it means to be sent by God. Two, what it means to do the Lord's work. Um, whenever we think about those things, obviously, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think anywhere in here you're going to find a place where it says, go take off all the top knots. Um, go, go attack anyone with a man bun. That's just not what, um, what the Lord calls us to do. And yet the Lord does call us to do serious work. Now, here's the reality in our world is that when we believe that there's objective truth to hold on to, when we believe there's moral standards that we're to uphold, oftentimes we get caricatured to be almost as crazy as this guy in the story. 
Because they think we're crazy that, oh, you've heard from the Lord on this. Oh, God's spoken to you and told you what's right and what's wrong. Oh, how do you know? And they begin to ask all these questions and it can become disorienting for us on this side because we feel sometimes like we're being portrayed as someone as crazy as the top knot terror. And yet we do see that God says, I'm gonna send you out into my world to be witnesses. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And that we're to go on a mission and that we've got all kinds of responsibilities that the Lord calls us to be about in terms of carrying out his work. And so today we wanna look and see if we can find a little better grounding for the Lord's work than the man bun bandit or menace, however it may be. So look with me at Acts chapter eight. What we're gonna see today is there's a man named Philip, who's actually doing the Lord's work, and he was legitimately doing that which God has called him to do. And what we're going to see as we begin to move into this section of Acts is that as, as you move into, or as they move outside of Jerusalem and kind of the, the group that looked very similar to them, they begin to go to f further reaches. They interact with new peoples, with new kinds of people. And in the midst of those different ethnicities, different preferences, different cultural backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different moral values, they're gonna try to figure out how to be witnesses of the gospel and tell them about Jesus. But the context is gonna completely change. So the message of the gospel doesn't ever change but the context and the people they're trying to reach look different than the ones they were trying to reach before and that's going to raise new issues for the church to wrestle with and what we're going to see in Acts 8 is that the gospel is always both confrontational and comforting the gospel always has two different sides. It's confrontational and it's comforting. And whenever the gospel reaches a new people, a new city, a new person, it always confronts their lives on a foundational level that forces them to examine the, the foundation that they're building their lives upon. And so it confronts and pushes in and asks them to reconsider what they're building their life upon. And it also then um, offers them comfort of a new life built on a stronger and more stable foundation, which is Christ. And so this is first true of our own lives. It has to confront us and then comfort us with a new life. But then it's also true as we seek to share the gospel with those around us and spread the good news of Jesus with those in our city and around the world. So as we're gonna look at, uh, here's what we're gonna do. It's a long passage. And I'll just say this up front. There's some crazy stuff in here. And every time I looked at it, I kept telling Chase, this week, I was like, dude, I don't know what to, I don't know how to get through all this, and some of it I'm just gonna have to table, and we'll have to come back to later, uh, but there's a ton of, a ton of stuff in here, so here's what we're gonna do, we're gonna look at the first story, which is Philip sharing the gospel with a guy named Simon, who's a sorcerer, then we're gonna look at a second story of Simon, of, of Philip sharing the gospel with, with an Ethiopian man who's a eunuch, uh, and so those two strange stories, we're gonna look at both those, and then we're gonna try to wrap it up, and, and talk about what God is teaching us through the whole book or whole chapter of Acts um, chapter 8. Sound good? Yes. All right, we're going to start in verse 9. So Acts chapter 8, verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the, the least of the people in the city to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, 
Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he himself was amazed. Uh, so do you understand the kind of setup here, the story that's going on? It's an interesting thing. We don't often think about sorcerers in our world. Uh, but here you've got a man named Simon, the magician, who practiced magic in the city. He amazed all the people. That, so this is a, a famous guy in his, in his area. And uh, when you think about magic, I think it's important to say, this isn't like a pull a rabbit out of a hat magic guy. This isn't like saw a, a lady in half on stage uh, in order to entertain people at a show, sort of a magician. Uh, when it's using that term, it's more like a sorcerer. Uh, and so more than likely, uh, this was either someone who was a charlatan fleecing people with a promise of healing and uh, them in order to, uh, for them to pay for that. Or uh, actually, it was probably more likely that he was doing actual miracles through sorcery and false spiritual forces of deception. Um, which is a pretty remarkable sort of a setup to this story. And you notice he's famous. He's got some clout. It says that everyone from the, the, the important people to the little people in the city knew who he was. And he was famous because of all the miracles and the things that he was doing. And then Philip shows up. What's Philip do? It says Philip preaches to him the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, what Jesus had done for him. And immediately it says that people responded to the message and they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and even Simon himself was baptized. And after that, he followed along with Philip. So he joined into the crowd and followed along with Philip for some time. Um, and he was watching the signs and the great things that Philip was doing. And he himself was amazed by Philip's miracles that Philip was performing in the name of the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting in this story. In spite of their history and spiritual background, they trusted Philip's message and they responded quickly. There's actually a play on words. You notice when uh, Simon was talking about the miracles he performed, uh, the, people, the people looked at him and they said, this guy is great. Or Simon said, look, I am great. Uh, and then Simon, the people said, this is the one who does works that are divine, like, he has a, like he's one who does things that are great. And so you see that word great, and you see the word amazed that's used, and then that gets turned around later. Now when Philip shows up, Philip does something, and Simon goes, wow, this guy seems even greater, and he does even more amazing things. And so Simon wants to get in on the things that Philip are doing. Uh, and so he begins to follow along. Now you notice what it says that Simon proclaimed? It said Simon proclaimed himself. He says saying he himself, in verse nine, saying that he himself was somebody great. Simon's proclaiming himself. What was it that Philip came proclaiming? Philip came proclaiming the Christ. Philip is talking not about himself, he's talking about Jesus. And so there's something that is different. What we're meant to understand by all this is that what Philip did through God's power was greater and more amazing than what Simon was able to do through his magic. Now you notice it also uses the word that he's watching and he's seeing all the signs that, that Philip is doing. Uh, this word signs is going to be used only two more times in the rest of the book of Acts. And what we're to understand about signs is signs signify something greater. And when there's a sign, it's meant to point to something that's even greater than it was. And sometimes what you see as you look through the scriptures, as you kind of run through the narrative of the Bible, is that at key moments in history that God bestows signs upon people so that they understand that God is doing something new, that these all point to a greater reality that God is unfolding within the world. In the Old Testament, 
When Moses goes into Egypt, he goes to Pharaoh and uh, begins to interact with Pharaoh. And what's he say? Pharaoh, let my people go, right? And Pharaoh says what? No, someone should write a song about this. But, but he goes and he asks him to let his people go. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so in order to prove his point to Pharaoh, uh, there's 10 plagues that come. You realize that each of the 10 plagues that Moses puts upon the people of Israel are God showing that he's greater than the little g gods of Egypt. And so each one of those is a specifically targeted sign that says Yahweh, Moses' God, is greater than Pharaoh's God. And so 10 times he gives a sign that says the God of the Israelites is the true God and he's greater than you. And so there's these miraculous things that take place and it proves God's point. So Pharaoh eventually goes, why don't you guys all move out? And the Israelites leave and they walk away. Not only that, they end up taking all the stuff from Egypt and they walk out and go and head towards the promised land. Now they trip over themselves. It takes a while to get there, but that's another story for another day. But what you're meant to see is that God sends signs at this key moment as he's delivering God's people out of bondage in Egypt so that they could go and become their own nation. What happens is a very similar thing here. God is giving signs. He's taking the gospel from the Israelites and, and saying these are God's people to now the, the gospel. Jesus, remember Jesus said in Acts 1-8, the, the kind of theme verse of this, this entire book, that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So it's gone from Jerusalem, now they're in Samaria, and God's giving signs saying the witnesses that are bringing this message of good news about the kingdom, about Jesus, they're from the true God. These are real things. And so he gives signs to the people. So let's watch what happens next because these signs get Simon's attention and he follows along and he wants to know a little bit more. So let's look in verse 14. It says, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let me stop there for just a second. Part of what's going on here is, uh, remember in Acts 2, uh, the, the Holy Spirit descends upon all the people there in Jerusalem and they begin to, to speak in other languages. They, they begin to understand the words that are going and the message of the gospel goes forth so that it's replicated in all these other tongues and all these other languages and they're hearing the message of God ripple out into uh, the rest of the world to fulfill that, that promise that God had given them. They were to be witnesses and carry that message. Now they've gone from Jerusalem to Samaria and it says they believe the message and they're baptized but they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. And so in this time of transition, uh, sometimes you'll hear people say that the Holy Spirit is a second blessing you have to ask for but really what we see through the rest of the New Testament is that when we believe that the Spirit comes into each one of us. And so we're baptized in the Spirit at the moment of belief, but because this is a time of transition where God is doing this new thing, there's a bit of a change that takes place and they wait for Peter and John to come and they lay hands upon them and the Holy Spirit comes through the, this kind of a process of laying on of hands. So then you continue in the next verses, it says, when they lay hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay on my hands may also receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are still in the poison of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Uh, so obviously, <clears throat> enough times passed that uh, word has gone from, uh, the, as they've shared the gospel with the people of Samaria, they've responded, word's gotten back to Jerusalem, the apostles hear about it, and so they send Peter and John and say, man, go give your blessing to this new ministry, because this is exactly what Jesus asked for us to do, to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria, and God has birthed a good work there. So they go and they begin to bless those people. Now, the question I think for us is, why did God wait? right? Like, why, why didn't God send the Holy Spirit? He does that later, and really throughout the rest of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes down immediately. Why is it he chose to wait here? I think there's actually, there is actually an important object lesson that God wanted them to see. He wanted them to understand that the God who came down in Jerusalem was the same God that came down in Samaria. And the, the, the people who were filled with the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem were the same ones that were filled with the Holy Spirit in Samaria. And so there's one people of, of God united by one Spirit through one Savior and Lord Jesus, um, which is a beautiful thing. And so people in two different groups are united in one people of God. Now, you have to think back to Israelites' history, right? When you think of Israel's history in the Old Testament, that, that Israel was the, perfect, the, the, the selected people of God. And what's happening now is this begins to ripple out to these other areas and everyone's incorporated into uh, this group that is now called the church. And as you begin to see this happens, part of what might happen is the people in Jerusalem would go, well, yeah, I, understand, I understand that God's doing something good in, in Samaria, but we're the varsity and those guys are the junior varsity. Right, like we're we're the we're the ones that it came to first, and that's kind of I mean God's God's tolerating them doing some good stuff, but they're kind of second class. They're they're not really the the full fledged followers of, of Jesus like we are because we're the people of Israel, and this thing started in Jerusalem. And so what's happening here is God saying, no, there is no varsity junior varsity. There's one people of God, and so John and, and Peter, the same ones that were there at the beginning to start this thing in Jerusalem, move out and they go to Samaria and through the laying out of their hands. God's doing the same thing in Samaria that he's doing in Jerusalem. And what you're meant to understand is that there's one God over Jerusalem and over Samaria. There's one Savior of those in Jerusalem and those in Samaria. There's one Spirit who inhabits the church in Jerusalem and the church in Samaria. And together these people are now one people of God. And with all their differences uh, between Jews and Samaritans, with all their differences culturally, with all their different religious backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and, and preferences and morality, they've been brought together in a beautiful, beautiful picture as one people of God, which makes what happens next even worse, right? Because what's Simon say? Simon goes, hey, man, I want in on this action. Like, I want to get a little piece of that. Like, tell me how you did that. What exactly is the, the laying on of hands technique to, to give this spirit and make this powerful thing happen? Tell me, can you teach me this, this technique or can you give me this authority? Can you give me this role so that I can be like the important guys that come and get to be the ones that everyone's dependent upon to do this? He completely misreads the situation, doesn't he? And what you see is that the, the Simon's old ways of being a magician and quoting incantations and doing magic and doing all these things are still with him. 
So he's bringing his old way and saying, how do I somehow take my old way and marry it to this, this new thing that's going on so that my magic can get even better? and I can become even more powerful, and I can become even more famous. Do you remember what it was that Simon preached to the people? He was talking about how great he was. So he's wanting to somehow leverage this and use this to make himself even more great and be more, even more amazing to all the people around him, um, which is a bit of a problem, isn't it? Now, uh, the, the theological term for this is syncretism. He's trying to synthesize or combine his old ways with this new way and create some kind of a new religion that I'm just going to add Jesus and add the gospel and add this Holy Spirit thing and maybe this laying out of hands technique thing into my magic that I like to do, and, but I'm going to continue my life sort of as is. And so Peter confronts Simon. Uh, what is it that Peter says is the big problem? He says, Simon, your heart is not right before the Lord. That at your core, something's still broken, something's still wrong, that, that, that you, you've not yet trusted the Lord. For I see that in your soul, there's still the gall or the poison of bitterness. You're still in chains of sinfulness. You're in bonds of iniquity, he says. That meaning, he's, he's telling me that, that the salvation that you, that you said you trusted, you never really trusted. What Peter's saying is, I, I'm now seeing the, the, the true state of your soul. Uh, friends, this is a, it's a, it's a scary thing to, to think about. Because what happens with Simon apparently is that he intellectually understood the message about Jesus. And he professed faith. It says he was baptized. He even followed along with the people of God. And what was, what's revealed through this, Peter says, is there was never any heart change that you intellectually understood and you said, I would like to somehow co-opt some of this, but I never really trusted in the gospel and ever really, which means he was never really saved. Friends, there's a difference between worldly sorrow over consequences and gospel repentance over sin. So we can look at the consequences and be fearful. We can look at the benefits and say, I would like to grab hold of those but there's something different about gospel repentance that says, I need to turn from my own way and trust the way of the Lord. And so I'm going to repent and begin anew. And so there's, as you see in verse 24, uh, Simon doesn't appear to get it even then, even after his confrontation. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come true. Meaning he's, he's fearful about the consequences. I don't want any of that bad stuff to happen. But he himself doesn't pray. He doesn't fall down on his knees and ask for mercy. He doesn't cry out to the Lord, Lord, help me. He just says, well, if bad, bad stuff's going to happen, can you pray and take that curse off of me so that none of the bad stuff happens to me? But he's not really willing to change. Friends, do you see why it's necessary for the gospel to be confrontational? See, the gospel has to confront us in our old ways. The gospel has to come and be uh, and kind of get in our faces and, and because we have to repent of our old ways and turn to trust God alone. Uh, somehow we have to abandon the old in order to embrace the new. But we can't hold on to both uh, because that's ultimately going to lead us down a path like that um, which we see of Simon. And so when you think about this, his, right, his heart was not right because it never really embraced the gift of God that comes, only as a, uh, that comes only by grace. You know, the specific charge Peter gave to him, he says, you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. What's he saying? 
Man, you thought you could buy God out. You thought you could obtain this gift for yourself through your own works, through your own earning it, through your own deserving it, through your own, like, if I pay enough, if I put the right thing in, if I, if I give something in, I can get out this gift of God and I can have this power for myself. I can obtain it for me. But gifts don't work that way, do they? See, if you, if you try to buy a gift, it's no longer a gift. Then it's earned. If you try to buy a gift, then it's yours. It's now my possession. And God will never be received that way. He says, no, I come only by grace. You come empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring. You just have to come and cling to him. You have to trust his grace and cling to it. So that's the pattern we see over and over in scripture. Part of what we see with, Philip, uh, with Simon is that he was the, that the God of self was still on his throne that he had not taken the God of self off the throne and put the Lord Jesus on his throne, but he himself was still the center of this thing. I want to obtain for myself through my effort this ability, this power, this thing that you're doing. Now, friends, this ought to be a warning to each one of us because it's possible for us to have the appearance of being in, in the community of Christ without ever being truly of Christ without ever truly trusting Christ from the heart. Simon made a profession. He was baptized. He followed along for a time, but he never really trusted Christ for his life. It's why Jesus says, to find your life, you must lose it. You have to lay down something in order to take something new up, that you can't hold on to both. He, Jesus didn't come to give us a new ability. He came to give us an entirely new life. Now, sure, uh, most of us are probably not trying to purchase magic, right? I mean, like, any, like, I don't even like magic tricks. They infuriate me. I'm just like, I don't even want to know how that happened. Uh, because uh, whenever I see those things happen, it drives me crazy. That doesn't tend to be a stumbling block for most of us. Uh, but maybe it's not magic for you. Maybe it's, it's approval and security that you want. And you came to church or you came to youth group and you found a group of people that was incredibly accepting and loving and kind. And so you say, oh, I just want to be a part of that. And so you professed Christ so that you might be able to stay a part of this group that's approving and kind and good. But maybe you never really gave up the God of self and trusted Christ. Maybe it's still all about how you can find that for yourself. Or maybe you want success and admiration and you put on airs by being a good church attender to gain respect among people of influence in our city. But you never really surrendered God and threw yourself on his mercy with nothing else in your hands, totally dependent upon him. So we come to Christ, we come only empty-handed, only asking for a gift that we could never earn, that we could never purchase, that we would never deserve. But it's just a gift of grace that comes to us freely from him. Um, you know, it's interesting that these forms of religiosity are for people who want the benefits of association with, Christian, with Christianity without the bondage of belief to Christ that reorients everything in life to them. So that's why I think the gospel has to confront us and in order to free us from our old ways. But then we also have to turn and what we get to see as we move beyond that is that it's through laying down those things that we can, that new life can come. Friends, salvation is always a gift from God. Uh, it's always only by grace. And it was necessary for Peter to confront Simon because especially with Simon's fame, uh, that entire group of people might, might have gotten derailed if they, didn't, if they didn't understand grace as it truly was. And so Peter had to confront him and expose him as uh, the fraud that he was 
so that the infant faith of that entire community might not be derailed, so that they might be freed from the chains of their sin. And salvation was at stake here. Uh, so let's uh, think through kind of this next section. So if that was the, the gospel of confrontation, we, we also don't want to just stay there, right? It feels kind of heavy. So we also need the gospel to be a gospel of comfort, which is what we see in the second story here in Acts chapter 8. And let's read in this section in verse, starting in verse 25. Or, I'm sorry, 25. Now when, the, when the, the apostles had testified and spoken of the word Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans along the way. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading by the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit, uh, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the man said, how can I unless someone guides me? And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this, from Isaiah 53. Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can, who can describe this generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And the eunuch turned and said to Philip, about whom, I asked, does the prophet say this? Was he talking about himself or was he talking about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news of Jesus. So that as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized right now? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water and Philip and the eunuch, uh, Philip and the eunuch and Philip baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he, was, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So uh, this is a pretty amazing story as well. And it's kind of a strange, appearance, a strange story with the appearance of angels. You get kind of this divine hyperspace that uh, Philip gets jumped to another place. Uh, but there's, there's an interesting take here because it's a seemingly irrational ministry decision, right? God comes to Philip and there's this thriving ministry in Samaria and he says, hey, I want to send you out to this desert place by yourself. It's like, so leave this really thriving ministry and go off to a place by yourself where it's in the middle of the day, where it's incredibly hot. There's almost no one out here at that time of day. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's, and, and this appears to be just a chance encounter, right? But what we see is it's actually a divine appointment. That Philip has with this Ethiopian man. This is a God opportunity that comes his way, and God drops him in a place, and he just happens to be in a place where a chariot comes by with a dude reading Isaiah out loud. Like, just like total shock that God just drops him there, right? Um, so there's obviously the Lord is at work here, and by his spirit is doing something miraculous. Now, here's what's interesting this guy's a long way from home, right? 
He'd gone up to Jerusalem uh, to worship, and yet he's from Ethiopia. Ethiopia was probably what we think of as modern-day Sudan. And so he's, he's, this guy is a long way from home. But it's interesting how different this man is from Philip. Philip's a commoner. He's a Jew. Uh, he, he's not a trained religious expert. Um, but he's being sent out to go talk to this guy. And this guy is in the upper echelons of a kingdom. He works directly and, and reports directly to the queen. He, he's, he's a dark-skinned African. He's also uh, a very wealthy man. This was an important trade route into and out of Africa with gold mining and all kinds of other thriving business. So this man's uh, likely incredibly wealthy, very different station of life than Philip. And yet God sends Philip there to go share the good news with him. Now, this man's also a eunuch. If you don't know what a eunuch is, you should look that one up. If you've got kids here, you can explain it to them later. Uh, but what happened in that culture was they often would castrate a man when he was young in order to help him be undivided and completely focused on his work. They thought somehow that was going to alleviate any kind of distractions at the office um, and be able to allow him to do really, really good work. And so this was a common practice in that day. It's interesting, he was probably also a God-fear, meaning he was someone who worshipped the God of Israel, even though he wasn't Jewish in terms of his own ethnic background. Um, now, the interesting thing about this is Deuteronomy 23.1 says, uh, just... It's just the Bible. I'm just the messenger. It says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Meaning that, that there was, you were able to get to the outer courts of the temple, uh, but if something was wrong in that arena of your life, you weren't able to go into the temple and worship fully amongst all the people. And this was part of the law in the Old Testament. And so this man who was a eunuch had gone to, uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem and was worshiping and was then leaving. And you notice what happens here. Uh, he's reading a section out of, out of the Old Testament, out of the book of Isaiah. And that book is about uh, the suffering servant. Now here's what's remarkable about that. All of it points to Jesus and Jesus' death and what Jesus was going to do for him. And so Isaiah 53, the verses that are read there, it says when Philip, uh, that the, the he talks about this innocent, righteous sufferer who had done no wrong but was taken out of the world even though he was innocent. That's what everything that Isaiah is pointing to. And you notice that this man says, who is the one that's talking about? Was it the prophet or was it someone else? Well, we know the answer, don't we? He's talking about someone else. Notice what it says in verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So he began with the scripture the guy was reading and he says, do you understand? He asked a question. And asking the question, he began to give an answer. And giving an answer, he pointed him to Jesus. Now here's what's remarkable and you may not realize. In that same section of scripture from Isaiah 53, or in the verses surrounding that, Isaiah 56 actually says this, and most people think this is probably why that man was leaving and reading these verses. Isaiah 56 says this, let not the foreigner, foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, I will give my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name so that they shall not be cut off. I will bring them to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful, joyful in my house of prayer. Their offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isn't that amazing? 
that right here, perhaps, and we don't know, but it, but it sure seems likely that this eunuch who had gone to Jerusalem to, to worship and not been allowed to get into the inner temple is reading this and he's going, oh God, would you do that for me? Would you give me a name that will never be cut off? Would you take me, though I'm a foreigner, and make me one of your people? Would you invite me all the way into your people so that I'm totally accepted by you and so that my prayers are heard by you and there's nothing to keep me from you? When, when is that going to happen? How is it that I find the one that can make that happen? And what's Philip say? It's Jesus that does that. Jesus is the one that's going to come. And in, uh, so in Isaiah 53, we see these verses. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. And with his wounds we're healed. It's through Jesus that this man's greatest needs are met. And he's brought in. And so immediately he responds with faith and just says, how do I connect myself to this one? And it's through baptism that he does so. Friends, I don't have time to walk through all this, but I want to just look at this last question. You notice the question of the Ethiopian. What prevents me from being baptized? Do you see, do you see Philip's answer? Nothing. What's to present to you from being baptized? Absolutely nothing. Not your race, not your ethnicity, not your geographical location, not your religious background, not your moral failures, not your physical condition. There's nothing that prevents you from being baptized except for you. You just have to trust Jesus. And if you believe him, then you belong to him. That's the comfort of the gospel. The gospel is big enough for all to believe. And all we have to do is receive this good news of Christ. The same gospel, it's interesting, saves Philip, a middle-class Jewish commoner from Jerusalem. It also saves a wealthy black African eunuch who serves in the royal court. And the grace of God is, is enough for both. So Philip moves on. And what does it say the man does? It says he went about his way rejoicing. Friends, that's what we want to do today. And I don't have a lot of time here. Let me just say this. Um, there's nothing but you keeping you from God. There's nothing, no sin that you could have done that's too big to be forgiven. And there's no brokenness in your person that's too dark for him to heal. But he carried our grief, he bore our griefs. And he took on himself his, our own iniquities. And he made a way for us to be fully restored. And we enter into that through the waters of baptism. Um, friends, if you want to be baptized, let me just say, what prevents you from being baptized? Nothing. Let's do it. Um, if you need to do that, we'd love to walk with you. You can jump on our website. You can fill out a card. You can just come talk to me. And we'd love to sign you up. We'd love to go baptize you. If, you. if you're like this guy and you can't wait another minute, I'll go find some water. There's a fountain over here. We'll go throw you in there. It'll be cold. But we'll get it done today if you want. And we'd love to baptize you. And that's how we commit ourselves to the gospel of Jesus. Buried with Christ in baptism. My old ways are gone. Raised to walk in newness of life. I'm a new creation in him. It's baptism. And then beyond that, Christ 
tethers us to it through something called communion. And as the band comes back up and as Chris comes up to walk you through that, we're going we're gonna to take communion together. And communion is an act by which we remind ourselves that nothing in my hands I bring. We're not going to charge you for this meal. Uh, we're going to give you a little bread and a little cup and you're going to take it. And it's because Christ has done all the work. And so we come empty handed and we receive something and we remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us that we might nourish our souls in the truth of the gospel and continue to grow in him. Sound good? Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might see your love. Um, it's breadth and it's depth, it's height and it's width. We might know without a doubt the grace of Christ. Father, where we need to be confronted, would you confront us even here? Would you confront us with the old ways we're still trying to hold on to? Would you free us from the chains of our sinfulness? And would you give us the comfort of love and acceptance in Christ that goes beyond anything we could ever imagine or fathom? Father, we pray it in his precious name. Amen.